0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. What spiritual disciplines do you practice? We're all familiar with reading our Bibles and prayer, but there's so much more available. In this interview, Blake Courtright guides us through his own journey into discovering ancient Christian disciplines that can help us today, including prayer, fasting, meditation, Bible studies, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Pulling on the work of Richard Foster, Henri Nouwen, Dallas Willard, and John Eldridge, Courtright shares how these spiritual disciplines can help center us and sanctify us so we can live for God better today. Here now is Interview 19, Spiritual Disciplines with Blake Courtwright. Welcome to Restitutio.
1: Thank you for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Today we're going to talk about some spiritual disciplines. What got you into Christian disciplines?
1: When I was a small group leader at Regent University, a life group leader they called us, our campus ministries team, every year we'd get together at the start of the semester for a training week and cast some vision for the year and, and do some practices. And I think my second year, we did something called, they called it the Way of the Heart Retreat, where we went off by ourselves for an hour to practice solitude, silence, and prayer, which was kind of new to me. I, you know, I'd done things like that in quiet time, but I hadn't been so direct and intentional about it. And it kind of caught my attention at that point. And so I was very curious as to what that. Experience was but in college. I didn't really have a lot of time to explore it or to practice it while some of my other friends did and When I graduated and I started this job and I was living on my own. I drive a lot for my job So I spent a lot of hours in the car and I very quickly wore out all of my music playlists <laughs> <laughs> So I was looking for something to do and I started listening to some audiobooks that I had already I listened to Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. I listened to uh, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard and both of those make great mention of spiritual disciplines actually Mm -hmm. even though neither of the books are explicitly about that Uh, wild at heart is about the masculine soul and about christian men relating to god as father and and to one another as brothers and and just a very dynamic look at those things and then renovation of the heart is about spiritual formation which is it's kind of like the introductory book to spiritual formation and that's the one by dallas willard dallas willard yeah. And basically in that, his premise is that spiritual formation is about its intention. He says its aim is to bring every element of our being working from the inside out into harmony with the will of God and the kingdom of God. This is the simple focus. So the practice of doing that lies in spiritual disciplines, but the idea of formation is heart, soul, mind, strength. His point, which I think is brilliant, is that In order to live a kingdom life, you know, he's pulling from scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That your whole being, it's a a holistic view of Christianity where everything is brought into subjection. You don't just show up on Sunday and cue your mind into what's going on and then you try to will your way through the week, you know, that, that doesn't really work. And I I found great comfort in that idea. So that was actually a book we had to read for uh, my senior year before we came into campus ministries. Why is this homework? (laughs) Over the summer, I'm in college. But it was really, really refreshing. You know, this idea of, and he he makes it so simple. You know, he's wordy, but he he breaks down these really complex ideas into simple, easy to understand things. And, And it triggered me to go deeper into formation. What is formation? so i asked a bunch of my christian buddies said, what, you know what are some great books i should read i'm trying you know i'm trying to fill my time i got like 50 recommendations in a day <laughs> <So> <laughs> i might have been on that list <laughs> yeah yeah no i think you gave me a call. i said oh man you asked for it where do i start <laughs> and um one that i had remembered one of my good you know one of my mentors in college reading was celebration of discipline by richard foster and i thought hey that's a that's a weird title <laughs> like why am I going to celebrate uh, discipline? That that sounds painful. <laughs> and and B, I thought, well, that's that should be interesting. And I found his manner totally disarming. And, and uh, he's a Quaker, so he has this very calming way of writing. And he basically says there are three forms of Christian discipline that he is drawing from, from the ancients. And, you know, these are practices that have been in the church for as long as the church has been around. You know, th- he says there's obviously some that... I'm not mentioning and there are some that I'm mentioning that other people might not. So, you know, it's not a comprehensive list, but it's a good starting point. And from a practical standpoint, and just an explainer standpoint, I think celebration to discipline really shaped my view of these things in a way that was healthy, biblical, historical, and also practical, which was kind of nice to have in one easy to read book. (laughs) All right. So what are the disciplines he mentions? So the inward disciplines of the Christian life are prayer, fasting, meditation, and study. And he differentiates those. And I I won't go into too much depth, but basically prayer is communication with God. Fasting is abstaining from food or drink or, or a behavior for a period of time for the purpose of focusing on God. Meditation is not the Eastern mysticism of empty your mind and open yourself up to whatever. No, no, no. The Christian practice of meditation is a very filling one. It's one that's rooted in the Hebrew scriptures as well. meditate on your statutes it is chewing over uh, scripture it's chewing over an attribute of God for a focused period of time I think actually the first time I was introduced to that I was in your small group and you were talking it was a book about I can't remember the name of it but it was about the ancient practices and I showed up and we did Lectio Divina which is the divine reading practice of we'll read through the passage five verses read through it again just to get our bearings read through it a third time and find something of a, a verse or a phrase that stands out and then read through it a fourth time, zeroing in on that verse or phrase and what it you know, the whole the whole thing kind of through the lens of that verse or phrase and then praying, God, what what does it mean? What do you want me to do about it? And that's a very, very good example of Christian meditation.
0: Right. So you're you're focusing your mind on scripture or on something related to God rather than emptying your mind or as Deepak, chopra says focus on the space between your thoughts like i <laughs> i can't like that's yeah. that doesn't do anything for me yeah. <laughs> personally yeah. it slows uh, your heart rate
1: down a little yeah maybe it slows
0: <laughs> yeah, it, it just makes me bored honestly but yeah. like christian meditation
1: is a very active mental yeah. process yeah it's like i i would compare it the difference of doing deep breathing which i i do tend to do like some of the physical physiological things i'll still you know deep breathing and sitting up straight and because that does help to calm and those things are great. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you're about to like really dive into this this morsel of really good meat. <laughs> and you know, like that's how I think of Christian meditation. It's not uh it's not eating a salad. You know. <laughs> it's um it, you know, salad is crisp and refreshing, but it leaves you hungry. <laughs> but but know, the, but point. the meat, you know. <laughs> and uh and then uh the 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 fourth inward discipline is study. So prayer, fasting, meditation and study. And study differs because a study would be like, you know, a word study like I, when I was in at Regent I went to a Calvary Chapel style church where we would literally week by week just go chapter to chapter to chapter through the whole Bible and do this very intensive word study. And that way, you know, you weren't skipping over things you didn't want to do <laughs> and you weren't harping on the verses you always love, like you're really intentionally moving through the Bible and spending time in a chapter and saying okay well what's the context here what's the greek word for this what does that actually mean what is jesus doing here
0: right so you're you're talking just to clarify because yeah. when i hear word study i'm thinking like you look up you look up on the internet all the places <laughs> where a word occurs and you try right. to develop that's not what you're talking about you're well, talking about expository like reading a chapter
1: I, really... I think both can fall into study okay you know it's it's a academic practice And it's an intellectual practice that feeds the mind.
0: So where you're working on the text rather than just reading it to understand it, and maybe have
1: a devotional aspect, you're you're really working the text. Yeah. So study is is a comprehensive, thoughtful thing. Where meditation is intentional, but it's very zeroed in on a few things. You know, sometimes you just meditate on God is love. God is love, and you try to and you and you dive deeper into that. It's not about going everywhere trying to understand that intellectually it's a it's a heart mentality so then he has the outward disciplines of simplicity solitude submission and service so you see he's moving from kind of the mind and the and the 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 soul outward into action so simplicity meaning you're not you're not going out trying to fill your house with all these nice things and trying to have the latest fashion trends he's like yeah like burn the fashion trends, you know, it's like very Quaker thing to say, but he, but I think it's a great practice of Christian simplicity that we're not trying to be noticed with our flashy stuff. And and that's one of the big criticisms of of mega churches. You know, some of these guys, you know, Oh, well you got a $70 million jet. Like what's that for? You know, well, I got got to get around all my speaking engagements where I get paid all this money, you know, like, but that's another dialogue, but Christian simplicity is partly a practice for your own soul, but it's also as a Christian, it, it shows that what we're about, that we're not about all the wealth and, and materialism. We're about God. Solitude, which well, I... Well, can... back to simplicity just right, for right, a second. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> if your room or your house, or your apartment is cluttered yeah. with stuff, it's harder to think. It's hard to have, harder to have peace, yeah. and it's harder to be clean. Yeah. So I, I realize this would typically not fall under a spiritual discipline. Hmm but I, I kind of appreciate how Foster does put it in yeah. because he is approaching everything from a very holistic perspective. Yes. And so I, I can't resist asking you about minimalism. I mean, <laughs> what, <laughs> what's the connection there? I mean, are genuine Christians all minimalists as well? I mean, what if you have two spoons instead right. of just one, right? right. I
1: mean, what, <laughs> what, what are we saying here? Yeah, yeah. Where's the line? Oh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was actually reading it, not from a Christian source, just an article about minimalism. And basically he's saying only the rich can afford to be minimalists. (laughs) You know, like, like really, like if, if you can afford to only have one of everything, that's because you can afford to replace it if it breaks. So I, I'm not saying everyone needs to have like their Instagram like their house needs to look like an Instagram portfolio where every space is empty except for a Bible and a cup of coffee at the right angle with the light coming through the window you know like <laughs> and and a fountain pen although I do write with a fountain pen but um, that's a requirement I think it's the spirit of it you know and that's one of the things that he he gets in here it's like you can do all of these things and completely miss the point. <laughs> like you could pray every day, fast for weeks on end, miraculously and meditate and study and do all of these disciplines and miss the spirit of them. So the spirit of simplicity is that God is our sufficiency. Okay. Um, and the spirit of simplicity is that we are not in the pursuit of material wealth or riches. Like, like don't build up treasures on earth for yourself is, is the core of it. But I also think, yeah, the clutter, like, it's not good to have a cluttered space. So I think in that sense, it, there, there's a lot of practical aspects to these as well as spiritual. It's not all like superstitious, super spiritual stuff. It's very grounded down to earth. Uh, all right, practices. well, let's look at solitude. Talk, talk to us about solitude Ooh, a little solitude. bit.
0: solitude. <laughs> now, so, solitary confinement is what you do to a prisoner who's naughty. Right. And it's a way of punishing them. So how is this a good thing as a Christian discipline?
1: Yeah. Uh, so solitude is a very ancient practice of the church. I mean, it goes back to the prophets I mean, this is a this is a very very old thing that christians do and there's a very big distinction between solitude and isolation there can be a tipping point too where you're in solitude and it switches to isolation i think isolation is which is more what solitary confinement is right you are cut off from other stimulation from other people from other interactions and you are left alone with your thoughts and you are left alone with your fears your anxieties and you stay there in this anxious, lonely, depressive, dark state, that's bad. <laughs> We're not contending for isolation. Self-isolation is a temptation that some of us face. Like I, I know I've struggled with that where I, I get tense in a situation and, and I don't really want to be there, so I just go self-isolate, and that's not healthy. But solitude is a practice of being alone with God. Henri Nouwen says, I love this, he says, solitude is the place of the great struggle And the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. And he also says, for the desert fathers, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion. It is the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude isn't just a place where you go when you're stressed. It's not your safe space though there can be a place for that you know a place to mentally go to rest but solitude is about being exposed before God just you and God and it's dying to self Um, Jesus went out in the desert in the mornings before dawn to be with his father and that's kind of the model that we're following it's not that oh go move into the desert for 40 years and don't have any human contact and stand on top of this post (laughs) Because there were ascetics who did things like, you know, they, they went really yeah, extreme. Simon the Stylite, I yeah. think was his name. You know, and, and there are some crazy things that people did. And I don't, I, none of these authors really contend for that. But they're saying in a contemporary context, we could still capture some of the spirit of that by having a place to be alone and quiet with God. Even if it's a closet or it's, you know, you're in your car on the way to work. It's a time where you're not distracted by the radio, by the television, by the, the hustle and bustle of life. And you are there present before God. And I know for myself, when I practice solitude, you know, sometimes it is restful and it's recuperating, but a lot of times I'm confronted because when you're alone, you have a tendency to have all these things come up that normally, and especially if you're not entertaining yourself. And I, I struggled with this a lot, actually, early on. And, and I would close my curtains every once in a while and just sit quietly in the room. I'd turn off my phone, I would turn off the radio, I'd turn off any distractions and sit quietly. And pray, and then I'd be, and then I'd listen to the Lord, and then sometimes He wouldn't always speak, you know, <laughs> and and you'd have these thoughts and temptations and urges and solitude. It's a discipline for a reason. It's a practice of using by refocusing upon God. You start to subdue those selfish desires by refocusing. You know, I'm there, and all of a sudden I have these thoughts pop into my head. Oh, I want to do this next, and then you, no, Lord, forgive me. Help me to recenter on you. It's work. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting there, um, you know, like it is a challenge and, and, uh, Henri Nouwen calls it the furnace of transformation, which I think is a very apt term because it is really difficult to be alone and quiet for an hour. I just looked up Simon, the stylite <laughs> guy. He was on a pole.
0: He was on their platform on the top of a pole, a pillar for 37 years. <laughs> Uh, so yeah he really got into it yeah, but we're not uh, going there. <laughs> that's that's not uh, that's not what you're necessarily advocating you're you're talking about are you talking about doing this on a daily basis or once in a while or what are we talk not 37 years straight no not pole, 37 right? years
1: straight there's variations of solitude too like sometimes you need it in the day you realize you're starting to become really distracted and unfocused on the Lord So you go and take a walk and go. I think it's really good to be stationary when you're doing it though. It helps because you're not distracted by movement and it helps to be somewhere quiet. Uh, Sometimes you just can't do that. But I found like sitting in my apartment with the lights off, curtains drawn and just, if you're a little uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing because the point is not your comfort and your relaxation. The point is becoming more submitted to God by sitting in that space with him and and as these things come up you push them back down like if i'm sitting here with you and i go look at my phone and then i put the phone back down like and i come back to where we are i, I think that's a good example a very simplistic one of solitude though, where your mind brings these things up and you're in with the lord and then you bring them back you know you push them back down and through that though you start to find a clarity and you start to be able to hear god more than you could before and you combine that with meditation or prayer and it's not that it's supposed to be exclusively that, because there's also the aspect of silence where you're just listening. But I think that you combine it in these other things. Sometimes maybe it's a weekend. You go camping, you leave the phone at home, and you just sit out and, and rest in God's presence. Um, so it, it depends. I don't. I, I think each person you'll find it. And, and Foster talks about this really well. He says, you know, you're going to find, if you're a father with four kids, like, you're not going to be able to get alone very often. So maybe it is in the car on the drive to work, you know, maybe that's your solitude, but he does advocate for having a practice of it mm-hmm. as, you know, daily, because it all these things start to add depth to your spiritual life and mm-hmm. cultivate a spiritual life.
0: Yeah. I like that. To add depth to your spiritual life. Some yeah. of us are spiritually shallow because mm-hmm. we're, we're, we don't take these t- the time to yeah. develop this area of our lives. I know that for me, I'm a very production driven person. So I like to produce, I like to finish things. And when I do, I feel good about myself and sitting alone in the dark for however long (laughs) feels like not getting anything done, but there is this sense of the discipline of Mm -hmm. spirituality and developing
1: this aspect of life. Talk
0: a little bit about these other two submission and service.
1: So now you're starting to move. So as he goes, he goes from very, very inward, outward, and the next set is the corporate discipline. So you're starting to move outward into interactions with other people. So submission is not only submission to God, but also submission to other people, that you are not trying to dominate the people around you, um, that you submit in obedience to the will of God. And and sometimes that could be a very, very dramatic thing, like God's giving you a call to move or to go do something dramatic, and submitting would be to obey and go do that rather than trying to have your own way. But it also is practical with other people, submitting to the people around you. And service is kind of in that same vein where you're not about yourself. The goal is to honor and serve the other person, to honor and serve the Lord, to honor and serve your community, to get out and do something for someone beside yourself. Like I think of
0: that as other regard. Yeah. You know, the whole concept is really well explained in first Corinthians Yeah, that uh, rather than seeking your own status, seeking your own personal fulfillment or joy, really focusing on the other, whether it's somebody you live with or somebody on the job or just a random stranger that we, that we become other-focused, and yeah. you see that in the ministry of Jesus mm-hmm. so much. I mean, he did take time alone. He did practice these things. Yeah. He he sent everyone away, and he went up on a mountain. He didn't even have a way to get to the other side of the lake. <laughs> yeah. He's just like, look, this is... I, I just need some time. Yeah. Jesus <laughs> needed some time. Yeah and he needed to recharge and yet the rest of you know what we see him doing is always serving others healing others feeding others teaching others yeah. walking with the disciples who half the time are knuckleheads yeah. right and we'd be the same way
1: though <laughs> <laughs> right right. so Wait, what do you mean um, you need to wash my feet no lord <laughs> so um what what about the corporate disciplines so the corporate disciplines are confession worship guidance and celebration. I love that. <laughs> Foster has this phenomenal story where he he called over this this, you know, spiritual this person who he looked up to spiritually, someone who he really like he almost had him in too higher regard, he realized. And the guy knew that. And he called him over to pray for him because and, and, he had something to confess and he needed help, and the guy came in and sat down with him and said, "Well, Richard, would you pray for me first? And he said, kind of taken aback a little because he's trying to make this big decision. He wants this spiritually mature person to, to guide him. And the guy confesses all his sins, <laughs> asks him to pray for him. <laughs> wow. And and then at the end of that, you know, he'd kind of destroyed this illusion of spiritual superiority and said, do you still want me to pray for you? He, he got to the root of, at the moment, Foster was thinking this spiritual giant is gonna do this thing for me. And it really cut to the root of it because we are all sinners, we all struggle, and it is only by the grace of God that we are changed. And he said, "Yeah, I still would." So then he confessed and prayed, and that's a. I thought that was a beautiful picture of confession, that it's not this compulsion that I have to do it or I'm going to go to hell or you know, but it's a practice that's freeing. It it just lightens the air and it gives you like it's it's like. You're, so are you,
0: are you saying confession to God or confession to other Christians?
1: Specific as a corporate discipline, specifically, it's confession one to one another like okay and the word says confess your sins one to another right but you're not necessarily conceiving of
0: this within a catholic framework right you're going to confessional bless me father for i've sinned it's been
1: a week since my last confess you're not talking about that no it's much more like uh like luther's priesthood of all believers right that that christ is in you christ is in me then i can confess sin two or more gathered in his name so i'm confessing the sin and then you pray for me and declare the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has declared, you know, and, and I think it's a really, really wonderful practice. It's scary at first because who wants to go and open up to someone else and say, yeah, man, I did this thing. But I think that it brings a freedom and it also helps with those accountability pieces that I mentioned earlier, because when you bring that thing out from the dark, it can't survive in the light. And ultimately everything done in the dark will be brought to light. Scripture tells us, you know, so. If we start now and we we do that action it just brings a freedom to live in the other ways without this burden and this this shame and obviously there is confessing to god as well but his point is we sometimes use that as a an excuse to not confess one to another and the problem with that is when it's only confession to god and we don't also confess one to another we miss out on the corporate aspect of the church because we're a body we're interconnected through christ and when we do that, it helps us to keep healthy. It's like I almost picture like you're you're getting rid of some of the unhealthy stuff, but it sometimes you need two you know two blood cells or whatever to do that. You know, like you you got to be united with with the body of Christ. That's a little bit of of confession, but I think it's a very important discipline, and I think it's one that we as Protestant post-Reformation Christians tend to dislike because we think of it in the high church sense or the Catholic sense, and that's not what this is. This is. Face to face, doing life together, and then moving on. I mean, that's the beautiful thing: is we declare the forgiveness of sins, and then it's gone, and we move into the next stage of life and and grow. And then we also have somebody who we can be accountable to, and who can pray with us and pray for us. And I think that that is a beautiful thing about the body of Christ. Hmm. One of the many. What's worship? Is that just going to church on Sunday, or <laughs> what? What's worship? So worship is a lifestyle. It's not just music. And I think a lot of us know that. And it's not just the Sunday worship service of going to church and receiving the word, receiving communion, uh, being in that community. It is taking opportunity to worship God in the little things. Um, We talked about this a little, like that idea of of vocation, that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, as long as your work isn't sin, right? (laughs) Like you're working towards the glory of God. And so in that, you can be worshiping while you're writing a blog, or while you're editing podcasts, or while I'm working on video, or while someone is taking the mail down the street, or whatever, while you're at the teller at the bank, while you're bending steel, you know, wherever your your work takes you, you have an opportunity to worship in that place, and to be thankful to God for what he's done, for the fact that you have a job that you can work, that you can find satisfaction in that, and you have an opportunity to, to bring him glory even in those moments, that the worship is not just a, a formalized corporate gathering once a week. And, and that is a big part of it. I, do, I think you see that throughout the Old Testament, too. They would gather together and worship the Lord with song and with music and instruments. But there's also the aspect of lifestyle worship, that we are um, pursuing God in the little details of life mm-hmm. and not grumbling or complaining through life, but... Because I found when I'm worshiping God and I'm doing things, it's a lot harder to grumble and complain. (laughs) I came across this
0: in, I think it was Bach, who who wrote SDG on his compositions, Soli Deo Gloria, which is like glory to God alone. Mm. And the idea of that is that God's made Bach to have this gift Mm. for composing music. And so he chooses to do that to the glory of God. Yeah. You know, what is he doing? What is he really doing? Mm-hmm. He's imagining sounds. He's maybe playing something on a piano, and he's writing, he's drawing notes yeah. on a staff, right? That's what he's actually doing. But he's doing it to the glory of God. So yeah. that means to me that, as far as I understand it, that means that he's trying to, to produce something good. Yeah. He's not like slacking off, oh, this will satisfy him. Um, and or this will be enough to get a paycheck. And in his case as well, a lot of times his music would be sung or performed in churches. Yeah. So, so yeah. <laughs> there was that extra connection in there. Yeah. But, I mean, even if it's not by nature holy work, even if it's just secular work, it can be done in a holy way to God's glory. And that doesn't necessarily mean you say, thank you, God, every five minutes. It just It just might mean that you're, you're doing it with a godly attitude, yeah. and you're doing it because god 's made you in such a way that you can do this yeah. whatever it is in in a good way, so' you're like you 're like a fish in water, yeah doing what God designed you to do, and yeah. you 're doing it in relationship to him, yeah. and in that sense it 's almost like a secondary worship, like a, yeah. a derivative worship as opposed to like a direct, more mm-hmm. intense form
1: yeah uh, what about guidance? guidance so guidance would be um, Again, beautiful about the body of Christ, where I would come to someone else with, you know, I I have a big decision to make, or I have this, and I seek the wisdom of the pastor or the elder, or uh, a brother in the faith, and you know, it's not that I'm jumping around trying to get all these hundreds of opinions, but to ask somebody who is strong in their faith, who loves God and is sensitive to his movements, I think is, and, and that's where like Christian counseling, I think is a wonderful thing, because people who are struggling with things should you know there are aspects of that psychology that are beneficial especially when melded with the christian faith where we're inviting god in to heal old wounds Um, but on a very pragmatic sense oh i'm looking at buying a house and i think this might be the one will you pray for me will you come you know you take someone who's a little older more experienced come look at it and they know a little more they have more wisdom um, that god has given them and so guidance is a very, just a very practical thing in that sense. And what about celebration? And celebration was the one that surprised me the most as a discipline. The idea of it as a discipline kind of Yeah, that sh- was does shocking. sound like a
0: contradiction. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but he said, you know, we as Christians can get so self-serious about these things, and we get so intense, and yet God calls us to rejoice in the Lord always, right? And, and we're told, I mean, look at all the feasts in the Old Testament. Mm. Like, God loves a good feast, you know? <laughs> <Like> <laughs> sure he sure yeah. does. And, and there's only one day of fasting and there are all those festivals. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that we miss that in, in our contemporary post-Reformation era. We we get a little bit too far into the asceticism and the idea that oh, I, I need to just work hard and, and all pleasure is bad. And I can't, you know, we just get into this like ridiculous notion that God doesn't want us to be happy or enjoy any, <laughs> like, right. and, and I'm not talking about your best life now, but that you gather in community and just celebrate and have fun and and enjoy, you know, whether it's getting together with a group of friends for dinner or for, you know, just a gathering or a card game or, you know, you're like, you're enjoying the community and you're enjoying God mm-hmm. or, you know, whether it's a big festival and you have balloons and buffets and all the lot and worship band and, you know. I think that celebration brings so much joy into life. And especially at the end of a of a crucible or a struggle for somebody when you bring celebration at the at the end of it, I think it's just satisfying you've struggled through something for so long and then you overcome it and then there's a there's a party i mean you get that even in the the parable of the prodigal son oh yeah he comes back and the first thing he does he runs out to him he puts the ring on his finger the robe on and he says kill the fatted calf let's you know we need to celebrate let's have a party
0: and so what he says to the (laughs) older son too is like your brother was dead now he's alive like we had to celebrate yeah we didn't have a choice yeah And uh, I I think you're right. There is a a tendency within Christianity, especially in the second and third centuries, Mm. to shy away from anything that is pleasurable or that brings joy as inherently suspect. (laughs) And that really infiltrates the Catholic Church Mm. during the medieval period. However, this is not native to the Hebrew soil of the scriptures, (laughs) because the Hebrews, they don't have any issue with celebrating in general, like their weddings last a week. Passover has four cups of wine. I mean, there's there's like the the messianic age we find in Isaiah twenty-five portrayed by a meal with rich meat and fine wine. Yeah. I mean that's the eschaton from a Hebrew perspective. It's not staring into a a tractor beam glow for all eternity, humming <laughs> in harmony with a thousand people around you. Yeah. But like totally intellectually bored and, (laughs) and physically, (laughs) you know, stuck in position, right? That's not, that's not the biblical mind. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I think this is great celebration. So another question I wanted to ask you was, I think there are probably a lot of ex Catholics or just like folks that are suspicious of Mm. Catholic practices. Yeah. That would say, Blake. It sounds like you have been sort of like deceived by these undercover Catholics to <laughs> embrace these bizarre practices. Christianity is just—you're saved by faith alone and Christ alone, Scripture alone. Yada yada yada. All the so- uh, like—I'll just throw yeah, the, the solos, the solos yeah. at you and say, "Look, if you're doing anything." then uh, you're a Catholic and Mm -hmm. it's works righteousness and it's, it's suspect and questionable. How would you respond to a criticism like that? And especially considering the fact that you've already mentioned multiple times, not, not just foster, but in the other sources you cited here that these people are drawing on the desert fathers and mothers, which, you know, these are, these are the, the monks of the third and the fourth century and the, um, Uh, contemplatives throughout the Middle Ages were, you know, like St. Benedict Mm -hmm. and, you know, these are the the monasteries, the convents and all this. Um, (laughs) Shouldn't we, like, immediately
1: reject anything that is monkish in any way? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a great question because I definitely had a little bit of that when I was getting interested in a lot of this, especially when I found out, like, Henri Nouwen was Catholic. But I definitely felt a little bit of that suspicion myself because – you know, what is grace alone? What am I? You know, faith alone, and it still is. That's kind of the beauty of these things. So the disciplines are not about salvation; they're about sanctification, which are you know big theological terms regeneration. But you know, salvation is the act of Christ saving us from Gehenna, from from hell, and and pulling us to God. But sanctification is the transformation from a sinner or from somebody who's just been saved as a new Christian into somebody who is christ-like right and that's a process it's not a you know people it's a lifelong journey and these disciplines are practices to place us in a way where those where that process is fostered and, and nurtured right when it comes to the objection hey this is
0: what the monks did
1: therefore we shouldn't do it how would you respond to that i would point out that uh the reason that we have scripture preserved and a lot of things preserved through the middle ages was because of the monastic movement. But (laughs) so so we do owe them a debt of gratitude. And I'm not saying go out and do the the extreme asceticism like the one guy on the pole, but uh, (laughs) I think there is a lot of depth that we miss and we lose by just discarding them because they were monks and that's extreme asceticism and blah, blah, blah. I think we should look at it through a critical eye, as we should all of history. But I, I think to discard them is the same as to discard the reformers, or to discard, you know, the preachers of the 1800s and the 1900s, and or to discard pieces of Christian history. You know, the early the early churches. I, I think it is a very modern view of the world. This idea that what we know now is better than what they knew so they must be wrong and i think that's a very arrogant <laughs> sorry it's a very um inaccurate view of history it's called, uh, cs lewis famously called it chronological snobbery yes and i and i think that we fall we fall prey to it in the contemporary evangelical church because we think that, well, we have come so far, you know, we're out of the Catholic, we're post-Catholic, we're post-Reformers, you know, we're post-post-modern, whatever, we're, you know, and... <laughs> we just really like the word post. <laughs> <laughs> and we're missing this rich tradition of the Christian church that brought life and depth in a way that I think a lot of us lack. And Henri Nouwen's book, Way of the Heart, really hits this it's like a 90-page book and it's the easiest little read in the world but it just challenged me to no end because he was saying and that was in the 80s when he wrote it Mm. and the way people were thinking then and i mean just look how much faster life has gotten and he said look what we're missing
0: Mm.
1: you know we're missing this genuine encounter with god we're missing this depth why and foster has many of the same questions why are we missing this Mm -hmm. And it's because we have shunned the practices as being too ascetic or too ancient or too whatever. And we're missing out on the life that they bring because as Foster said, it's like, this is a way that God has ordained for means of grace as a way to receive grace, not earning it, but simply it's posturing to receive it as the way that I think like, like a kid comes up and says, can you give me some ice cream or whatever? And he has his hands in his pockets He's not in a pot. Like, yeah, sure. You can hand it to him. (laughs) You can give it to, you know, he's not earning it. He didn't pay for it. You know, you're giving it to the kid, but if he doesn't take his hands out of his pockets, he's not going to be able to partake of the the deliciousness. (laughs) Great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not about, oh, now I suddenly am conjuring up the means to achieve this end. It's I'm posturing myself to receive it because he's pouring out blessings. Right. And we miss a lot of it because we aren't in a place to receive it. We're, we're so focused on our phones and our busy lifestyle and Netflix and our internet and you know whatever else that we are missing grace. And I think that's a tragic thing that's happened to the yeah. church.
0: You got to recognize that our society will chew you up and spit you out <laughs> if you don't find a way to fight the sort of everyday grind and yeah. the sort of life-robbing rat race of our lives i mean especially if you're watching a lot of tv or or movies because like those are messages that are rewiring your brain Mm. to think a certain way and a lot of it focuses on dissatisfaction Mm. a lot of advertising in particular specifically wants you to feel like you don't have enough Mm. or to feel that you don't what you have isn't good enough or to somehow inspire within you a desire for more. And these disciplines, in a sense, are ways that we can put the brakes on Mm. and sort of attend to our hearts, attend to our souls Mm. in a godly manner so that we can experience him and really have better flourishing, human flourishing. (laughs) Um, So we're all out of time for this episode, but if somebody's intrigued by what, you've just been talking about here, and they are adventurous enough to pursue this a little further. If you could only recommend one book, which one would it be?
1: Oh, that's tough. I would say in terms of disciplines as a holistic, overarching view, and, and up, but also that includes the practical side of how to do them, I would say Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. It's an easy read. He's very gentle in his mannerism. He's not trying to push something on you. And I find it to be a very, very, it was a very refreshing book and it really exposed me to things that I didn't really know were useful practices. And, and I have started, and he also says, you know, don't try and do all 12 at once, Mm. you know, like you're going from zero or maybe one. So just start to add them over a week and just practice it and write about it and see what works, what doesn't. And I think that that, that approach is very, very helpful. The other one I would say is way of the heart by Henry Nouwen, because it is, an incredible view of that lifestyle um, and, the, and the transforming power of it. I think they serve different purposes, but those two would be my... <laughs> but if I only had one, it'd be celebration just because of the... Oh, uh, no,
0: that's fine. Yeah. I'm glad you said two. Excellent. Thanks so much for spending some time here today. Thanks for having me. Well, I don't know about you, but I learned a lot in this conversation and I'm looking forward to putting it into practice. As for Blake Courtright, if you would like to get more information about him, you can follow him on Twitter at Blake Courtright. Also, I put in the show notes for this episode a number of the books that Courtright mentioned so that you can get those if if you want to dig deeper. And and then next week, we'll have him back for a second interview on a, on a very sensitive subject. So stay tuned for that. Before closing up, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Dale Tuggy's challenge to James White, which occurred last Monday, May 8th, 2017. And he did a second part of a two part series evaluating James White's opening statement in a debate he had against a biblical Unitarian associated with the Iglesia Ni Cristo group. And at the end of this episode on the Trinity's podcast, Tuggy threw down the gauntlet, I'll have to say. It was it was pretty impressive. In fact, I thought it was so impressive, I typed it all out and posted it on restitutio.org, and that post has has had over a 1,000 views within really 48 hours. So it's definitely got some legs to it and moving around, and essentially what I'd like to see is James White, who is really probably most well-known evangelical Trinity debater of our time, go against Dale Tuggy. And that's because although White is incredibly experienced at debating and using a particular strategy, Tuggy is a logician, a philosopher who has such a keen mind to detect and expose fallacies. So I think this would really be a great matchup. They're both very biblically based in their cases, and I think that will help a lot. And honestly, I'm optimistic to see how White adjusts to this situation, because Tuggy is not some weirdo cultist. As he writes himself, he says... I'm not in a cult. I've never been in a cult. This is Tucky. I'm pretty much a lifelong evangelical who just went back and reexamined Scripture at great length and found that it didn't say what I thought it was going to say. Basically, I'm an insider who's a whistleblower. I accept the authority of Scripture and all of it. I neither assume nor accept the authority of the Catholic traditions that Dr. White is relying on in his exegesis. So I don't fit the script. I do think I'm qualified to do this. Hopefully, Dr. White agrees and we'll work something out. Well, anyhow, after posting that, I got some feedback. Uh, Brian writes, Thanks for the update. I intend to listen to Dr. Tuggy's second podcast on Dr. White's recent debate later today. I hope that Dr. White receives, considers, and accepts Dr. Tuggy's invitation to debate. It would be most fascinating and exciting to see them verbally duke it out. John Bainbridge writes, Yep, you should do it. It's great and quite funny at times. Especially the return of the Oneness Pentecostal rock stars, which, by the way, Professor Tuggy, yeah, I realize you're dealing with the medium of audio here, but that is really one of the best YouTube videos I've seen in all 2017. Looking up, looking up the video "Trinity Schminity" by Winterband. You should all go watch it. It is, it is just epic. So anyhow, in addition. Carlos writes who uh, Carlos who is, is the MC for the theological conference writes happy to host it and then puts theologicalconference.org of course the theological conference for this year sponsored by Restoration Fellowship and Anthony Buzzard is next weekend so <laughs> i don't know if uh White or Tuggy? I know Tuggy's uh, planning on attending. I, that seems a little short notice, there, Carlos. But uh, thanks anyhow for the invitation. Hey, maybe maybe White uh, is ready to go. He already just prepared his last debate. It's the same subject, so maybe he'll say yes. And and in six days, five six days when this event begins, he can show up and we'll have an awesome debate. I'm not too optimistic that's going to happen, but I will say. That if you're out there listening and you have an idea on how to host this debate, whether it's a church or a a college campus or some other event, please get in touch. You can drop a comment on recitutio.org under the post, Will James White Take Dale Tuggy's Challenge to Debate? Or you can go over to trinities.org, Tuggy's website, and uh, give him some feedback there so that he knows so he knows what's available. That's often the biggest issue when it comes to making a debate actually happen is scraping together some money to get p- for travel and getting people a venue where they can have an audience preferably with people from both sides so it's not lopsided. <laughs> So I'm excited to see what happens with this. I think this is going to be a really good exchange between two Christian men who are on different sides of a very important issue, whether or not Jesus is God or if God is a Trinity in the traditional Catholic sense. So stay tuned for more information about this debate. And remember, friends, the truth has nothing to fear.